0: And then, if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you've joined us. Uh, we are so excited to have Stan Mitchell with us today. Stan has been a pastor most of his life, still pastoring people to this day. And we just met recently, just a few months ago in July 2022 at the Wild Goose Festival. And I drove all the way out to uh, North Carolina. Brian McLaren encouraged, encouraged me to go to this festival to meet some new folks. And Brian was the only person I knew when I drove out there. So I was I was feeling a little bit uh, like, man, who am I going to meet and bump into? And then a couple of people said, you need to meet Stan Mitchell. And Stan, I went to one of your uh, talks that you did at the Wild Goose Festival and hadn't met you yet. And you did a talk. I don't even know what you would title it. It was actually an interview that somebody did, but you kind of worked in a talk about uh, you. You quoted Paul Ricoeur. The second naivety, but you kind of walked through this beautiful way of talking about deconstruction, reconstruction in terms of faith and, and your experience with God and the world and right. all of that. And, uh, I was in tears and I don't cry. You know, I've listened to a lot of sermons, preached a lot of sermons or messages, whatever you want to call it. And don't just don't cry that much during them. So it's usually something significant. So I, uh, somebody already told me about you, and so I thought, well, I'm going to hang out, meet Stan, and you were gracious enough to have coffee with me the next morning. So, welcome to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks, Fred. Glad to be here. I found your story fascinating as we uh, talked over coffee, and so I'd I'd love for our audience just to hear uh, some of your story, like where where you were born, your you know your growing up years. Uh, calling into calling into ministry, you started early and and young in the ministry. Share with us yeah, some so of your your story and your your story of origin.
1: I am a northeast Arkansas kid, right off the boot hill of Missouri, five generations deep on both sides of my family here in a little town called Paragould. Grew up in the um, the oneness Pentecostal movement if you know that movement very well our family kind of divided up assembly of god church of god united pentecostal and my particular clan was in the united pentecostal church my great great granddad was a pentecostal preacher great granddad was a pentecostal preacher grandparents parents great saints so age of 16 if you know anything about the pentecostal world young males with a little bit of precociousness and zeal often are conscripted into ministry. And at 16, I started preaching um, and just preached the party line as sincerely as I knew how. But at 20 years old, if, if, if there was a moment that interrupted that process for me, 20 years old, my United Methodist neighbor lady unwittingly gave me a piece of external literature by a lost non-Christian author called Max Licato, at least from our perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we weren't supposed, as young preachers in that movement. We were very exclusivist. You know, we were the only people saved. The church had been dead for 19 centuries, and we revivified it. Yeah. And so, as like, young preachers, we really weren't supposed to read that kind of literature. But I like read Licato. Like,
0: like for our audience, Southern Baptists would have been liberal for you, right? Oh, oh, the bastion of liberalism. Yeah, they, we said they didn't believe fat meat was
1: greasy. We were so exclusivist when we studied, when we studied comparative world religion, we were studying the Baptists and the Nazarenes and the Methodists. That was our
0: comparative world religion. And they were all they they didn't make the grade, right? None of them were. No, of course, they didn't make the grade. We we yeah.
1: honestly believed we were the only Christians Yeah, and um, we we honestly weren't too convinced that we were saved. We just thought if anybody had a chance, it would be the best of us.
0: So you could, you could lose your salvation weekly, right?
1: We lived with uh, unconditional eternal insecurity. It was a, it was a really, it was a, honestly, it was a tough way to live. Now I don't, I, I I'm, I'm careful because I don't want to make fun because all I remember about those people. Um, I mean, they're still my people. I remember them as a deeply sincere committed group of people i don't have any wounds to lick i don't look back and remember hypocrisy and people being you know dualistic or you know in any way i i remember a bunch of wonderful people doing the best they could with the information they had yeah and as my angelou said you know when you know better you do better mm. and of course what i began to find through writers like Lecato and swindoll and 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 Stanley, I literally bibliographed my way upstream. I, I realized pretty quickly with evangelical guys, if you want to know what they're thinking, don't read what they write, because they're writing for a milieu that pays their bills. But if you really want to know what evangelical guys think, read who they read, go to their bibliography, see who they're reading. Every one of them was always reading a bit beyond themselves in terms of progressive thought, which told me something. And, and you know, I, I don't know what to say, except that Lakato led to Swindall. Swindall led to Yancey. Once you get to Philip Yancey, then all of a sudden you find Frederick Beakner and Henry Now and Madeleine langle and Paul Tillich and those guys. And once that world opened up to me, as Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. And I just kept as a young minister reading. I was very cisgender heterosexual but in a theological sense i was very closeted i was reading things that were stirring me and 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 of course i was uh, the bracing that i had received religiously was that all of that was a process of falling away you know i was warned that that was believing a lie and being deceived by satan and the rational mind is enmity with god and all of those scary things that kind of keep you in but i i couldn't quit reading Mm -hmm. and i couldn't quit um thinking so
0: yeah so at 16 you're preaching you graduate from high school did you go to public school or did were you in a private school
1: i, I went to a for, I went to high to a school public school i went to a public high school okay
0: but a, after yeah. you graduated from high school did you go did you go to college at that point
1: um i i did i was warned i mean okay so because i was thinking like, but I was.
0: I was thinking that like in that stream that you were in, the the oneness Pentecostal, first of all, like if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't saved, right? Right. And right. The Baptist,
1: in classical Pentecostalism, which is Wesleyan, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace, but not for oneness Pentecostals. It was the work of grace. So it was not like a turbocharge on an already good engine. It was the engine.
0: Right. You're saved and baptized in the spirit all in one experience. and That was salvation, everything, right?
1: Repentance, and, water baptism, the infilling of the Holy Spirit are like three numbers on a, on a chain yeah. lock. You have to have all three.
0: Yeah. And then education, particularly from the secular world would be considered dangerous. Dangerous. And yeah, so now you was, are a preacher was... you're and you, after high school, you're already preaching. Do you go to college? Do you get educated or are you we, just reading? Was, you just described all your reading track because you're yeah, that was.
1: Well, I was I was warned not to. I mean, the interesting thing is I, I had a good brain. I was wasn't a large class, but a class of 160 kids. I was the valedictorian. I had national merit scholarships and ACT scholarships. I could have gone to Ivy League schools, but I was told not to. And because I remember one of our leaders set me down as young minister and said, Ninety eight percent of our young people who go to secular schools lose their faith, which in his mind meant that there must be something wrong with secular institutions. Right. right. But obviously there was another side to that that we didn't see. So I um, I, I became I became a full time evangelist. We had a lot of non accredited Bible schools. I went to one of those Bible schools for a while. Education was something I pieced together later yeah. in life. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Just, just through reading, studying. All that um, kind of stuff. No, I, you know. I went back
1: to institutions. I, I, okay. I got, you know, I got a master's uh, from Vanderbilt and theology and, you know, I, I did all okay. of that later.
0: Okay, cool. All right. So you're this young traveling evangelist. Do you travel mostly in America?
1: Yes. United States,
0: My my
1: 19 year old year, I, I remember, I, I remember the number When I was 19, I preached 235 nights that year. We had lots of revivals. Yeah, we were were the Wednesday through Sunday revival folks. So I was in church every night of the week, preaching my heart out. Yeah.
0: Wow. And like, were these kind of like tent revivals or are just old churches, just, just churches,
1: little churches, all scattered all around the hamlets of Louisiana and Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma and Missouri.
0: And so yeah, you were the was, young, great communicator. All these churches were from your your sphere of influence, and they wanted to get Stan Mitchell in to bring revival.
1: <laughs> I suppose. I suppose, Lord, I look back. It's quite embarrassing thinking about myself. I in those days, yeah. I I mean, we had the truth, and I I knew how to preach that truth, and so. I preached it. And in those days, you know, being given that kind of power, that kind of leverage, that kind of influence, even in the small world as a young person, you know, those talented kids like I was, it's really a pathological is too strong, but it's not psychologically healthy. Um, Precocious young religious stars like I was are, are like a nascar engine and a volkswagen chassis there's (laughs) lots of horsepower lots of horsepower but there's no suspension and braking and and all of those things that handle that horsepower so people pay a lot of money to see it like a freak show run around the track but eventually it hits the wall Mm. because it can't sustain that kind of thing so
0: yeah
1: Yeah. that's what's true of hollywood and music stars is true of young religious stars as Mm.
0: well well i think you know, you're you're a great communicator and obviously gifted in that. Um so so you went from the traveling evangelists in the oneness circles to uh uh Nashville, right? Nashville, Nashville right. became your home.
1: So yeah, I left, share that I left story the United Pentecostal little bit. church. Well, I left the United Pentecostal church when I was 26. Um We had been uh, there was a sense in the United Pentecostal Church that there were young men like me that were beginning to kind of push the envelope a bit. Not just young men, some of the older men were pushing the envelope, questioning some of our ideas. And so the edict was given that we had to begin to reaffirm our ordination annually. We had to re sign a piece of paper that said, I recommit to preach, teach, and believe the articles of faith, the United Pentecostal Church. And I was one of the young men. On grounds of conscience who couldn't do that. Um, I, I, I remember telling my district superintendent, I, I suppose I can agree to preach and teach it, but I can't make myself believe it. And I, so I left the United Pentecostal church, which was devastating for me. This was my people, both sides of my family. And it was a bit like getting up and getting out of Ur of the Chaldees. You, you get up, you get out and you never go back. And, It was it was grievous for them. It was grievous for me. They're dear people. And but that was my first, you know, people know me years later as a pastor who led on on in the evangelical world on matters of LGBTQ inclusion. Those those years where I was leading on LGBTQ inclusion and facing the ire of so many people, uh, what a lot of people didn't know is I had already hollowed out a capacity for that kind of Negative press and uh, you know the capacity to face rejection because I had done that many years before. Mm -hmm. The hardest departure I ever made was from my family denomination, my world. So, yeah. But there was a guy in Nashville named L. H. Hardwick, pastored a great church called Christ Church. He actually was a long-term, long-time UPC guy who had left the United Pentecostal Church, and after leaving, had built a very wonderful, more ecumenical you know, mildly charismatic Pentecostal church in Nashville. And he had a heart for young people like me. Mm-hmm. And so he brought me there essentially just to kind of put me back together. And I was on staff there with him from 95 to 2002.
0: And you were, you were preaching there, right? You're I was what? a teaching Spirit. pastor. Yeah, it was, yeah.
1: Yeah. It was brother Hardwick and I, we call him brother Hardwick. It was a church of eight. Th- I mean, it was, it was heady stuff for a 27 year old right. kid. It was, we were 8,000 members, and, and all the country folk and the Gaither folk went there, and I was preaching every other weekend. Uh, he was such a gracious guy. He was one of those guys that had no insecurities. He, the more I succeeded, the better he felt. By my third year, I think my 29-year-old year, he had me preach Easter. That's just the kind wow. of graciousness and wide-heartedness. Wow. And, and so I I learned I lot. I never, I I a never lot gave up Easter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, very that, few that do, like, but he was, that, was that, like, that kind of wide-hearted guy. It's like Super Bowl yeah. weekend for me. But yeah, yeah, um, well, yeah, and people who aren't from Nashville, like this. So I remember visiting this church probably in maybe the nineties mm-hmm. or two maybe two thousand. Um and I knew this church, you know, from its reputation. Uh, and uh, I knew that probably I, I don't know if all these folks went there, but I knew like I, I pretty sure the Gaithers went there. Did Michael W. Smith go there at one time? And, you I'm know, not sure about I, I, honestly,
1: that. everybody in the music industry, country or gospel went through christ church yeah. it was for a kid from northeast arkansas it made for great stories when i went home for christmas and family reunion right. because i was i was always you know at dolly pardon's house dedicating her niece or at waylon jennings house with jesse coulter eating dinner i mean the judds and lee greenwood and sawyer brown it was just on and on and, and of course on the gospel side Uh, Vestal and Howard. And just, it was, it was, it was a really remarkable place. Yeah, LH Hardwick, the guy that founded the church was just a remarkable man. I was there for seven years and it was a profound impact. I quote him every day, still all of these years later, the challenge for me was I continued to read. And while it was a move from the United Pentecostal church to a more mainstream evangelical world, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't stop reading and my theology continued to move toward a more progressive idea. Yeah. And so yeah, eventually I, I left there.
0: I imagine um, that Christ Church, if I remember, you guys did communion every week, right? At Christ Church? Uh, there
1: were times, we did, yeah, there okay. were times that we did. Yeah, there were times that we did. My predecessor and postcessor there was the same guy. His name's Dan Scott. And Dan's a brilliant. Wonderful human Dan came from the same Pentecostal world I did and, and really became an Anglophile in terms okay. of the Episcopal Church. And so Dan brought a lot of the liturgical influence to yeah. we really yeah. followed the, the the Weber style of evangelical, charismatic, right. liturgical to try to blend those three strings. Right. We kind of ran the aisles and tripped over our rosary beads.
0: Yeah. And like I'm just thinking, like a lot of people know me. F- you know, I pastored a vineyard church for 29 years in Kansas city and Christ church probably theologically wouldn't have been that different from the vineyard world. I'm guessing, would you have had very similar female pastors? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You had female. I mean, so it was, it was somewhat of a progressive evangelical church and I, what I called myself charismatic light, you know, and uh, a little bit, you know, lean like, if I went to, if I hung out with my Southern Baptist friends, they would call me a British evangelical or a progressive evangelical. Right. Just, just for having women in ministry alone or, or drinking a beer every now and then, or, you know, whatever. (laughs) But, um, but you kept, you even, you kept pushing on beyond that as you kept reading, you started Diving into people who wouldn't even have fit in that world. Right. You're, you're reading people who would have been more, more progressive.
1: Right. I was, I was reading, I was reading Tillich and Niebuhr and classic uh, classical liberal theology. My, Mm -hmm. my, my views begin to shift around six major subjects. If I look back in retrospect, it, it wasn't my intent then But the six major ideas that really reshaped for me were how I thought about God, how I thought about Jesus, how I thought about humanity, who we are, what we are, how I thought about salvation, how I thought about the Bible and how I thought about the afterlife, not necessarily in that order, but God, Jesus, humanity, the Bible, salvation and the afterlife, those six premium ideas within a Christian Christian systematic, I really slowly but surely shifted from, and we can talk about this as much as you want, but it may be boring for folks. I shifted from a traditional conservative perspective on those things to a, 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 a quite wide-minded, plural, um, um, I hate to say pluralistic, but in, inclusivist perspective, progressive liberal perspective on those ideas. Yeah. So So it was quite miserable because I was in an evangelical setting where I was preaching messages. I really didn't. I wasn't doing it hypocritically. I was doing it like trying to hang on and convince myself. And I I couldn't. I, I was, I was, I was what we now call deconstructed. I don't like the word deconstructed in terms of what I was going through. It was more disoriented because deconstruction feels a little more active. I did not actively deconstruct. I, without wanting to became disoriented.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You know, I went to Baylor for my uh, undergraduate and uh, you know, I, I'd been kind of a recreational drug user, 14, 15, 16, got saved at a Southern Baptist youth camp, Mm -hmm. preached my first sermon when I was 17, called to ministry when I was 16, um, right out of that. So I went from Like I went from, you know, doing drugs my sophomore year in high school and I started the Fellowship of Christian Athletes my junior year in high school and uh, and then went to Baylor. And my Baylor professors, people don't realize this, but Baylor was really liberal in the religion department. So, like, all of a sudden I'm I'm 18, freshly saved, getting getting discipled by, you know, Campus Crusade Navigator kind of kind of stuff. And uh, and then I'm going to class and learning. Tillich and Bultmann and Schleimacher. And I'm, I'm actually remember reading like Hartshorn, the process theologians and Whitehead yeah. and when I was 18 and 19 and stuff. And I had great loving professors who were all into these folks and I would read them and I would be interested, but I was, I was like, well, I, I think you know, I got saved and I, just, you know, Jesus saved me from drugs and I think demons are real. Cause I think I had one and, you know, and the, <laughs> all these, I had all these, you were one. <laughs> and so I ended so, up gravitating toward kind of like what I'd call really smart conservatives, you know, like in today's world, would be like an N.T. Wright kind of a person, right. which I still love N.T. Wright. And Scott um, McKnight, or, Alistair yeah, McGrath, exactly. All those guys. Yeah. And those are kind of the ones that I gravitate toward. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so, um, and and I, and it wasn't like I was, I hated all the other folks. I just, that's kind of where I gravitated. But right. then now I kind of go back like, I'm rereading all the process guys now, you know, like I'm going back and reread you're reading, rereading Beekner. I'm, I'm rereading the process guys and stuff, but uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting world. So you, eventually resigned from Christchurch because of that reading and the, because of where you were at in this disorientation. Is that correct? Is that why you resigned? Yeah, I,
1: I left, I, I left Christchurch in August of 2002 and actually moved out, got out of ministry. I, I, my disorientation was so severe. I I collapsed in a lot of ways. I wasn't sure I really believed in God any I, You know, that's that's one of the challenges of not being not being taught that disorientation is a natural part of psychological maturation. When it happens to you, it so overwhelms you, you build up a head of steam and inertia that you can't stop and you just go through to the very end. And so I I took it down to the dregs and and was totally out of ministry. And uh, for for a while there, I. I, I didn't go anywhere, didn't do anything, but I, I did miss spirituality. And honestly, Fred, I began probably at the behest of Beekner. Some things that I had heard Beekner say, I began going to 12-step meetings, um, any and all 12-step meetings. I, 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 I became deeply moved by their approach to human spirituality. And it just worked for it worked for me. I was going to O A S A A A N A. If it had an A in it, I was going to it. <laughs> Not because of the particular addiction, but just the way they talked about God, yeah, and the way they treated one another, yeah, which was what Beekner had talked about. Beekner had really posited in multiple places that he thought if Jesus would have had any sway in how his community turned out, it would have looked more like a 12-step meeting than a Sunday morning worship service. And I found that to be true. And I I really, I really kind of nursed my way back to spirituality, even Christianity through that 12-step world. And out of that, then ended up a couple of years later, starting Grace Point, the church that I founded back in 2003, 2004. And I'm still a part of Grace Point 20 years later.
0: Yeah, let's let let me pause there just a minute, because this I love this part of your story, because, you know, as you know, I've been in the recovery world now, 12 step world now for almost three years. I'll celebrate my three year uh, September 10th in in about four days. All right. Wow. Congratulations. And and, um, and that was through, you know, I came to Xanax really late in life trying to deal with insomnia. And then added alcohol into the Xanax. Then that, after doing alcohol and Xanax for about two years every night, undid my self-discipline, which upended my whole life. Right, My whole life kind of fell apart. And um, I ended up resigning from the church I'd founded and pastored for 29 years and really felt like an atheist myself. And in 2019, when I resigned and got divorced, 37-year marriage ended and all that stuff found AA um but I could have gone to any of them as well like like you say and uh and I I it was it was the spirituality there that that brought me back plus a friend of mine sent me a Richard Rohr book falling upward and I started reading wow. Rohr, I started reading Rohr like crazy and I was yeah. I was in I did the 90 and 90 thing if you know anything about the AA yeah. world I did too I probably went to two meetings a day for 100 days straight <laughs> And uh, just that's where I just camped out, you know, and then I'm still very active in one of the largest uh, halls in, in the Kansas city area. But um, as well as I've networked broadly now with the whole recovery community in Kansas city. So I love that about your story, even though you weren't dealing with uh, an addiction, you just, you just fell in love with the spirituality. And that's, I actually lead groups now in Kansas city with people who aren't out addicts or alcoholics, but we're using the 12 step model basically as a spiritual model. Right. And we meet together and and do group kind of around the same model. As a friend
1: of mine, a pastor friend of mine said when he did a series on the 12 steps, he said, you know, it's, it's all this stuff is in the Bible, but we weren't using it. So somebody should. Yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) So It's so true. Uh, And what a beautiful You know, one of my things is, you know, in the big book, when Bill W. was wrestling with this czar of the universe that he didn't want to believe in, you know, and somebody said, well, why don't you make up your own concept of God? And he was like, oh, okay, well, that works, you know. And But my joke about that is, you know, like you and I were raised. That's not how it works. You don't make up your own concept of God. But like like what I've watched now for three years with hundreds of people that I know now in the recovery world, nobody comes up with a more cruel, pathological God. (laughs) right it's almost always a more loving god you know
1: yeah imagine that
0: (laughs) yeah oh gosh so uh, all these things we were fearful of and like what you let people go and they come up with a loving god it's like wow oh
1: imagine imagine that and (laughs) and i don't i I don't think that's a vile uh leaning i think that's an incredibly natural intuitive hunch that we all had and and we all had it as children and then lost it and then we come back to that place i i don't i don't know any child i've never met a child in all my years of pastoring who believed they were inherently separated from god until they were taught that in their early elementary years that came as a shock to them it was like the church's one obligation was to undo this intuitive truth that children understand no child yeah. believes they're inherently separated from God.
0: Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. Isn't that except right? Except you become again as a child, except you go back yeah, to that. Totally. Yeah, We don't need to take that, them through catechism. We need to just, we need to listen to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've, that becoming like a child is a huge thing to me. And I love that. In that talk that you, that I heard you give that impacted me so much, you were talking about the, Paul Ricoeur's uh, second naivety, you know, and right. it, it, to me that that's wrapped up in that a little bit, you know, that absolutely you, you kind of return to that childlike thing. I read Matthew Fox's uh, original blessing because I I like you when I started reading Roar, I started reading all the people at, in Roar's footnotes and bibliography. Right. And me to some great, you know, I've read a lot of great stuff based on that. Yeah, too. And that was one of them I really loved was Matthew Fox's. Original blessing.
1: Um, yeah, it's a brilliant idea. It, it's, <laughs> it's 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 one of the revolutionary fundamental shifts for me scripturally is the rereading of Genesis one through three. Yeah, because you and I and the classical position is that is a story of sin, separation, sacrifice, and salvation. Right. It's uh-huh. kind of alliterative, and I, I wish it was uh-huh. four S's, but it works. It's sin, separation sacrifice salvation and that's not the story at all it's not it's not even remotely the story we we read the story and adam and eve did sin and god still came to the meeting place to meet them but they were hiding that's not that's not sin causing a holy god to stay away that's shame causing the sinful child to hide because of a misunderstanding of who God is. God came and said, where are you? They didn't go to the meeting place and say, God, where are you? And God said, well, I can't come down because I'm holy. And the holiness of God is defined by God's incapacity to be with us when we're broken. I mean, what parent would laud themselves as a parent by saying, I am the best parent and I prove myself to be the purest parent by my unwillingness or incapacity to be with my child when they're most broken? Yeah. God still came and said, Where are you? They said, We're hiding. God said, Why are you hiding? They said, We're naked. God didn't say, You better believe you are and you need to stay hiding. God said, Who told you you were naked? And God coaxes them out. And God then propitiation. Fred propitiation covering animal skins. The first propitiation in scripture question. Is it them offering the sacrifice and covering their sins so God could be comfortable with them? Or is it God covering their shame so they could be comfortable with God?
0: Yeah. Great question.
1: It's obviously the latter. Yeah. That, that covering was not for sin. That covering was for shame. That covering was not for God's discomfort. It was for theirs. And so the real story in the Garden of Eden is shame, estrangement, presence and healing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the story. And so I I, you know, it's like Jesus said, you heard it say the problem isn't what the Bible said. The problem is what we heard it (laughs) say. It's the hearing that. But I, I don't look at that and say we've been wrong and now we're right as much as I just think human consciousness, even within the body of Christ, we're growing years to hear things that we didn't hear before. I mean, we are a group of people who have proven our capacity to walk a long time with the text, only to see it unfold in ways that we could have never imagined for hundreds of years previous.
0: So, Yeah. yeah, that's so good. I was, I was always educating myself. So I went to you know, I did a master's, I did a doctorate at Fuller and then I was working on a PhD in the Hebrew Bible. And before I, I was on my dissertation, when I went to rehab, so I didn't finish it, but I was studying all these mostly Jewish, uh, Hebrew scholars, but also a few of the American, you know, and British, uh, Hebrew scholars as well. But one of the guys was from, uh, from actually from Southern Seminary, which is, you know, Al Mohler's Mm -hmm. territory and super Calvinistic, but he was a, he was a Canadian brilliant, one of the brilliant Hebrew scholars of the day that's alive. Uh, Peter Gentry teaches at Southern. I think he still does, but he had reworked uh, the word study on, on the, on Kadosh, on holiness, the word holiness in the Hebrew Bible, and really has written articles on this challenging the whole the whole uh, R.C. Sproul idea that that holiness core idea is transcendence, right. and has reshaped it. Really believes, and I think he's right that it's actually devotion. Deminous. It's devotion. Yeah. It's devotion. Oh, that's lovely. And it's uh, and that's what it's all about is this: This God's devoted to us, no yeah. matter what, no matter what. And uh, and that just that alone, you know, yeah. for me because this, you know, for me reworking all these ideas it's, it's been, if, if there's a God, (laughs) it's gotta be self-giving love at the very heart of everything. Uh, You know, to me, I can't, Yeah, I mean,
1: maybe the ultimate transcendence of God, maybe God's holy otherness from us is God's absolute unwillingness to be separate from us. Yeah. Maybe God's devotion to eminence, yeah. is the thing that makes God most transcendent because we have a tendency to be estranged and mm-hmm. pull away. Yeah. God has the exact opposite. Yeah. So the otherness of God is God's imminence, yeah, not yeah. God's distance.
0: That's brilliant way to put that. I love that. That's cool. Good stuff. Yeah. That's that'll preach.
1: <laughs> I, yeah. If we were doing that anymore, <laughs> it'll, li- right. it'll live even better.
0: Yeah. So yeah, definitely. So um, let's, so you started Grace Point. So you, you kind of connected with the 12 step world and Um, felt called back to start a new kind of church, right? Right. Grace Point in Nashville. And um, let's, let's chat about that for just a few minutes and then kind of get to where you're at now uh, in terms of your Uh, life and ministry and stuff like that.
1: You know, Grace Point honestly, was started to be a, a deconstruction zone for evangelical people. Um, I, I I had experienced that kind of, Brueggemann calls it orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And I like that idea. Brueggemann really divides up the Psalms and says there are Psalms of of naive orientation. You know, you have the young David, the Kings on his throne, righteous people prosper. Wicked people are punished. Slingshots, bring down giants. Everything works, right? Mm -hmm. Those are Brueggemann calls those Psalms of naive orientation. Mm -hmm. And then Psalms of disorientation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cave of Agilom on the run, god anointed him to be king and yet it didn't work out and years of pain and sorrow my god why have you forsaken me those are psalms of disorientation and then there are psalms of reorientation for the lord is my shepherd and it's an admixture of green pastures and still waters as well as valleys of the shadow of death yeah And that to me is a lovely way of describing what we now call deconstruction. And I knew I had known that experience myself so well that I really felt passionately to start uh, kind of a post evangelical church and a, a church that was stylistically evangelical. But for people who were reading Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren and Rob Bell. We gave those kinds of evangelicals, as Merle Haggard said, uh, those who were looking for a place to fall apart, we gave them a place to fall apart safely. And that was really how Grace Point started. And we did that for 10 years. And we grew to about 3,000 members, 800 to 1,000 weekend attendants. And it wasn't like a meteoric, you know, evangelical church. But in terms of what we were doing, being the church where you could truly ask questions, when people would say, when people would come to me and say, how does Grace Point feel about abortion or a substitutionary penal atonement? My answer legitimately was, I don't know. You'll have to ask them
0: <laughs>
1: because I I, yeah. I didn't feel that I was the prototypical evangelical church who said, here are our 10 bullet points, right? Our church was not a 501 C three as much as it was 2,500 to 3,000 human beings. And so when people would say, what's your official position? I would say, we don't have one, What we do have is this is a safe place to not know. And I don't, I don't think that's what the Christian church will forever be or should always be. But I think those zones need to exist in the body of Christ. And so that's what Grace Point was.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, that, that overlaps that 12 step world too, in terms of the spirituality. Absolutely. And the world. That, that's where, that's, it's such a safe place to develop yeah. some kind of spirituality and, and to ask all the questions in the world that you would ever ask about that stuff, you know? So. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, you know, I loved, I, you know, in that talk that touched me so much that you did, if I remember right, I'm going off memory, but you, you hit on Psalm 21, 22, 23, kind of that progression yeah. that you just named that Brueggemann had. Yeah. And then you related it to, if I'm not mistaken, a Joni Mitchell song.
1: Yeah. Did you um, do that? <laughs> yeah. Paul Ricoeur, the great French existentialist philosopher, he just died maybe a decade ago in his 90s. Record was the first one who gave us this idea of, or at least articulated the idea, as we go through three phases in life. Really, this gets into Piaget, Erickson, James Fowler stages of faith, but Record had a really lovely way of simplifying it. He said there is a pre-critical phase, a critical phase, and then a post-critical phase. And he called those three phases. Uh, he alternatively called them first naivete, which is what Brueggemann would have called naive
0: orientation.
1: Right. right? We are memorizing the answers to other people's questions.
0: Right. And it's what every child then, learns, you know, about. It's, of course. Stuff. Yeah. Faith. And it's yeah. the same reason I know
1: this is a thumb and this is a finger. Someone right. larger, more authoritative than me helped me develop the schema. Yeah. And so that that's what he called first naivete Brueggemann's naive orientation. But then he said, you you generally are pressed by life, which Piaget, Erickson, those guys would call this weaning, unenmeshing, differentiating, individuating, which mm-hmm. honestly, as much as that's healthy psychology, we don't promote that within conservative religion. Right. You You memorize a catechism between five and 12 and... And you live your life dutifully maintaining the answers, memorizing, regurgitating the answers to other people's questions. Mm-hmm. The first stage of criticism is, wait a minute, these aren't my answers to life's questions. Then you start finding your own answers. And then you think, wait a minute, these aren't even my questions. <laughs> and so first, naivete always moves into what Ricoeur called the desert of criticism. And the desert of criticism really provides you with critical lenses that debunk the naive orientation of the first naivete. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Roar talks about this a lot. Roar is a, is a fan of Rekur. Roar I think is the one who first used the language, but at some point in, in the dryness of that desert of criticism, we have to be called again from the desert. We have to be called to naivete. Mm-hmm. But this time it's a second naivete. And second naivete minds the beauty and the awe and the wonder and the humility of first naivete with the intelligence, the articulation, the critical lenses of criticism and mm-hmm. the desert of criticism. But it blends those two. And that's what Jesus referred to as becoming again as a child. Yeah. And I think I think it's Rakur who teases out the difference between childish and childlike. Mm. And, and and so it's 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 why I told my daughter when she. Had Santa Claus debunked and she became critical of all the stupid children who still believed in Santa Claus and thought all the parents who promoted that were just in it for the money or whatever. I remember the day I told her I still believe in Santa Claus. She's like, no, you don't. But I described the story of a guy named Nicholas in Turkey and and the seeds of that legend that accretes and develops a mythology. And I explained to her what Campbell tried to explain to us, that myth isn't something that's untrue. It's something that is so irrepressibly true. It rises up in a thousand faces, a thousand heroes, a thousand alphabets. And so when people say, do you take the Bible literally? I, I say, no, I take it way too seriously to do that. (laughs) Myth is not less than fact in history. It's more than. And so
0: that's good. So that's
1: first naivete criticism, second naivete. And the thing that you heard me talk about was Joni Mitchell's song that she wrote when she was 24 called Both Sides Now. And I would just say to all the listeners, do yourself a favor. If you really want to get the point of what I'm trying to say here in a scrambled form, find Joni Mitchell at 24 years old kind of Peter, Paul, and Mary-esque in a prairie skirt, singing in real fast time with a guitar, both sides now, her song. And then after watching her sing it in two and a half minutes as a 24-year-old, zoom ahead 50 years to when she was at the Kennedy Awards Center, and she comes out after two-pack a day of non filter camel and strokes and a lot of life, and she takes seven minutes to dolefully sing that song as a dirge of brilliance just the comparison between the young Joni Mitchell and the old Joni Mitchell is brilliant but it is it is such a beautiful musical representation of first naivete criticism second naivete the first verse speaking of clouds says rows and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air Feather canyons everywhere. I've looked at clouds that way. First naivete, criticism. But now they only block the sun. They rain and they snow on everyone. So many things I would have done, but clouds got in my way. Second naivete, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down and still somehow. It's clouds illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. The second verse is about love. First naivete, love. Moons and junes and Ferris wheels. The dizzy dancing way that you feel when every fairy tale comes true. I've looked at love that way. Criticism. But now it's just another show. You leave them laughing when you go. And if you care, don't let them know. Don't give yourself away. Second naivete. I've looked at love from both sides now. From give and take. And still somehow. It's love's illusions, I recall. I really don't know love at all. There was a time in first naivete Christianity, conservative traditional Christianity, that I thought liberal progressive Christianity was such a foul diminishment of the truth of Christianity. I thought the strength and the power of truth was in rigid fact and accurate history. The Jesus that now I understand the ideas of holiness and sin and resurrection and incarnation are not in any way less than the literal form that I once wooden-headedly believed in. They're not less than that at all. They're deeply more. And, And I think one of the foolproof tests of second naivete is once you arrive there, you know that no one could have imposed it on you, that you shouldn't impose it on anybody else. And you're so satisfied to let other people take their journey because nobody changed me. Life did. And all along the way, God was there with me and old crusty AA guys were there and Brother Hardwick's were there. And and you just leave people to their journeys graciously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Stan, that's beautiful stuff, man. At least for me. (laughs) Well, I love you and and I have a similar we have a similar life. I love the way you uh, have shared that stream of thought right there and how you pulled that all together from, from your child with the Santa Claus to, you know, those three phases to the Joni Mitchell song. It was, it's a beautiful weaving of, uh, of that. I love I, that. That just touched me so deeply just hearing it just that little bit again is is so powerful. Thanks for sharing. Well, that.
1: I, I honestly <laughs> would say, I honestly would say that the first stage out of fundamentalism, conservative Christianity, often for young middle-aged people, lands them squarely in a critical phase that becomes its own type of fundamentalism and its own type of condescension and Phariseeism and diminishment of others. And honest to God, after living, after living a good amount of time with angry liberals, I would say, leave me with a literal Santa Claus rather than leave me without gifts and presents and yuletide and love. Leave me in a conservative faith that may be a little bit too scary, but at least has awe, than to leave me dry out there with no meaning, no comfort. I just don't think it's in either or. I think there is a place mm-hmm. if you continue in life that transcends both of those and includes the beauty of both of them. Yeah.
0: I'm with you. I, you know, I think back when I was a teenager at Baylor and I was reading all these progressive guys and gals, mostly guys, you know, but um, it was like, uh, that's what got me was sometimes I would bump into this sort of this arrogant uh, fundamentalism on, on the liberal side of things. right? Right. And I, and I just couldn't buy in. So that's what led me to try to grab hold of a you know, an N.T. Wright or somebody like that who still kind of held on to some of the magic. I like yeah, to say, like, I, and I, I like to say, like, mythology to me now is like, it's, you know, deep truth echoes everywhere. I like to absolutely. say. Absolutely. And like, so it's I, in I, science. It's I like love that. Everything, you know, it's everywhere. It yeah. echoes everywhere. And it echoes. You know, I caught that from, you know, Lewis wrote a little dinky article one he time did. called Faith Became Fact. And he talked <laughs> about, know, well, it's great. Well, if it's true, he thought, then it would echo everywhere, right? If there's yeah. any truth to it at all, then of course it echoes everywhere. So, of course, there's right. mythology around death and resurrection because it's true, you know. <laughs> it's right. Like there's whatever, you know. Anyway, that's uh, that's I know. Yeah, yeah. It's such a beautiful idea that myth is not that which
1: is untrue; it is that which is so indomitably true, deeply that true. it just keeps showing up. Yeah,
0: everywhere, yeah. all the time, everywhere. Yeah. Anyway. Well, hey, let's let's take the last uh, few minutes we have here, because I want you if you're willing, I want you to share kind of you had that public outing. You were outed a little bit. I don't know if you can share around that a little bit and kind of how that impacted you and your church about the LGBTQ thing and then how that's kind of led you into your current work. I'd like to kind of wrap things up with where you're at now in terms of your work and your life and ministry and stuff like that?
1: Well, Grace Point in 2012, we were 10 years old, nine years old. And, and we had really kind of found our groove as that deconstruction zone. And the Marriage Amendment Act came out and began to be highly debated within our, you know, within our governmental systems and our, our populace. And one of our members at Grace Point was a popular country music star. If you pastor in Nashville, you're going to have a few country music folk in your church generally. And one of ours was a, a, a highly regarded country music star and a wonderful person. And she was asked in an interview with the BBC. Interestingly, it was BBC. and I think kind of the illusion was from the BBC reporter's perspective, you know, what had happened to the Dixie Chicks um, it was still currently on people's mind in Britain because what they had said about president Bush happened there and they kind of lost their career. And BBC reporter said, you seem to be a progressive person, but you sing to a country music audience that is obviously conservative. How are you handling the current matter of the marriage amendment act? And our, our member told them, well, I, I, I go to a church that is, quote, gay friendly. And I know my pastor is a friend of mine, is himself inclusive. Well, that was a bit of a shot heard around the world. Because as a deconstruction zone, I realized in retrospect, we had about a third of our church who were evangelicals that I had tricked into coming because I wanted to convert them to liberal thought, which is really kind of ironic that I had a liberal theology but i still had this evangelical ethos of thinking i had a better idea and the hubris of thinking i have a right to trick them to convert them right which (laughs) is something i deeply regret but you know you live and learn and and so a third of our church was like wait what what grace point are you talking about and then there was a third of our church As you might suspect, who got exactly what I was was saying, they were attracted because of what I was saying, and they were definitively liberal. And then we had a third of the church that was squarely in the scary white knuckling in between of deconstruction and our church's response. Now we also got external responses when she said that because Westboro Baptist decided to come picket us that week. Right,
0: I got picketed by them once too. But,
1: <laughs> but I wasn't nearly as concerned about Westboro picketing outside as I was looking at what was happening on the inside, and I realized we were in an, in an untenable place because we had deeply conservative Christians with very progressively liberal Christians trying to do fellowship together. Mm. And it's a Christian ethic, liberal or conservative. It is a consistent Christian ethic to at least be able to tolerate across the fence. You know, to, to to have ideas that are not parallel, but overlap or at least are contiguous. Conservatives and liberals know it's a Christian ethic to reach across the fence and say, I don't I'm not where you are, but it abuts up to where I am. The problem for us was our conservatives and our liberals did not share a common boundary. I mean, we had had Unitarian Christians on one side and Fundamental Baptist Christians on the other side, and they were on the same board, on the same staff, in the same choir, and they were all able—I had developed a form of preaching— And it wasn't duplicitous as much as it was a style I had learned to where everybody could get out of it what they needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, after she said, our church is our pastors inclusive and Grace Point's gay friendly, a third of the church was like, yeah, right. So what? And a third of the church was like, what, Stan, are you talking about? And I knew that I had to get clear that 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 had been unfair, that that was a a misfire on my part. So I went to the elders and I said, I am personally inclusive. And I'm not going to impose that on this church, even though I founded this church, founding pastors can cast a long shadow. I don't want to do that. Would you as an elder leadership group, would you be willing to allow me to lead this church in a two and a half, two and a half to three year process of discernment on this issue? And the elder board consented. I went to the congregation the next weekend and I said, I think this is one of those issues that merits revisitation by the Christian church. In the history of the Christian church, from our earliest days with Gentile exclusion, we have a history of being forced by incarnational experience to revisit ideas that are dissonant with our experience." whether that's chattel slavery, women in ministry, Gentile inclusion. And I went to the congregation and I said, I think this is one of those. We in in the next six months, we lost five to eight hundred people just on the grounds of wanting to revisit the issue. And then finally, after two and a half years, I did my first same gender wedding, December of 2014, January of 2015. Uh, I stood up with the elders and we announced full inclusion for the LGBTQ community. So we made that transition. Church lost a lot of people. Um, I, I don't know what I would do differently. It was just an impossible scenario. The Grace Point survived that window. It now has a new lead pastor. I'm founding pastor. And the church now is a solid, wonderful church of several hundred people doing vibrant, good work fully inclusive a post-evangelical liberal church of the free church tradition we have the stylisms of an evangelical charismatic church with the theological sensibilities of a mainline church it's really a unique deal and and now all i do is go around working with evangelical churches who are towing the threshold of this issue yeah um As well as I pastor a diaspora of queer people and their families all around the country who live in small towns in South Dakota, Delaware, and Nevada, and don't have a grace point nearby to go to. And they can't take their suicidal trans kid back to the youth group where they're told things that make them want to take their own life. So that's, that's my world now. I just, I still am doing deconstruction work. It just really centers, or at least is spawned by this intersection of gender sexuality and people's faith from evangelical Mm -hmm. backgrounds.
0: Yeah. So interesting, isn't it? I, you know, stuff that I've been doing here in Kansas city, it seems like, um, I mean, some of it's just strictly, you know, Jesus centered and, uh you know, love Jesus still, all that kind of stuff, follow Jesus. But some of my groups are made up of the recovery world, the deconstruction world, and the LGBTQ world. And like, like those, like some of my, you know, I was always welcoming to the LGBTQ community at Vineyard Church for 29 years, but I was in a movement that wasn't affirming of that. And And I I didn't know where I was at. You know, I, I, I went to seminary in the eighties. Do you know, we never talked about, I never had one class that even mentioned LGBTQ stuff in all the years that I went to, you know, in the eighties, going to Southern Baptist college and seminary, never had one discussion in any class about stuff. Uh, Neither did we have any active shooter training either. So, uh, yeah, this world is such an interesting one, but, um, yeah. So, uh, some of my LGBTQ friends have just loved me through my whole, (laughs) my whole, uh, experience these last three and a half years. And, and I've, you know, I've found that, you know, gosh, I've done funerals, I've done all kinds of things for that community and, and, and you know, people in groups and really just falling in love with that community because I know shame deeply now. And I know how I've, I've had, I've listened to enough of their stories through the years to know how deeply they've had to work their way out of shame because for many of them, they were taught that and the religious environments that they grew up in, you know, taught them to hate themselves because of their sexual orientation and, uh, Wow. What a, what a brave, courageous group of people, you know, in our, especially yeah. you know, still hung on to some spirituality through all of it, you know? Yeah. So I, I admire your work. Uh, yeah. I I really greatly appreciate it. I know it's come at a I you I know you've, you've paid some, you know, you've, you've paid some, uh, some, some deep costs along the way and, I admire that. I admire the fact that you've uh, given your life to this new phase of pastoring people in our in our world, in our in our United States of America who need who want pastoring. You know, I've the, the recovery, LGBTQ deconstruction world. It's like they're not anti-community for the most part. Right. They still long for community. And there's and most of them aren't anti-Jesus either. Right. And, and there's this, there's this deep spiritual bit I find in, in those worlds. So that's been a fun space for me to discover though. It's not been, I didn't get there easily. I got there through a lot of pain, but I hope it goes somewhere good. And uh, you were an inspiration to me, Stan. I really appreciate you.
1: I heard mother yeah. Teresa was inter was, Asked the question, I think it was Mike Akinnelli. You remember Mike?
0: Yeah, um, sure.
1: Great youth worker. Uh-huh. Mike said, asked Mother Teresa, how how is it that you have become such a humble person? And he said, she snickered and said, if I am humble, it has not been through some virtuous pursuit. It has been because life has humiliated me sore. And and I I think I think you know the gift of our own failures has softened us in ways. I have had people before look at me and say, well, the only reason you're doing this kind of work is because of your own frailties and fissures and failures. And I, I think of course. Because it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom. People who are rich in resume, people who are rich in, in, in life. Sometimes those that have so much go away sorrowful because it's just too much to offer. And sometimes the gift of failure, the gift of gracious failing is that we bankrupt on all the stuff that kept us from following Jesus. And even though we didn't nobly sell it and follow him, maybe that's fortuitous because we would have written a book about that and been proud of it. Maybe the bankruptcy and the loss of all those things that humbled us was the gift that made it easier for us to follow him. So even that to me, if we have found humility Whether that was a forced journey or a virtuous journey, who cares? We're there now. And this is a place of grace and gift. And with the LGBTQ community, people talk about, well, our church is becoming affirming. Our church is welcoming. All of those words are so patronizing. Mm -hmm. Grace Point finally realized we didn't become affirming. Grace Point repented. We didn't invite LGBTQ people to the table. We finally joined them there. Mm. If we know anything about Jesus dietary habits, they were the ones at the table. Right. We were the ones that joined them.
0: Yeah.
1: We didn't do anything wonderful. Right. We just stopped doing something awful. And you don't get a Nobel Peace (laughs) Prize for stopping doing something awful. So there's no no pats on the back deserved in any of this. To quote Godric, Beekner's Godric, what's lost is nothing compared to what's found. And all the death that ever were, if it were pulled together, could scarcely fill a cup set next to the river of life that now runs in me. Whatever I have given on behalf of these people, they have returned it to me a thousandfold. And that's the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I was going to say amen, but... uh... (laughs) <laughs> you can do that. Second <laughs> like night, nice, we, can, we can say, man, hallelujah, and run the aisles again. <laughs> All right, Stan. Man, thanks so much. You're a blessing. I appreciate you. I appreciate Likewise. your heart, your spirit. Very, very good. Look forward to Likewise. staying connected with you. Thanks yep. for uh, taking this time to share with uh, our listeners. And, um, Everybody, thanks for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. Take care. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.